Hey everyone, I'm Brian. One of the things I really like about this podcast is that it's about real people with real stories. I like the mix of monologues and interview style episodes, and yeah, it's just easy, inspiring listening. There are coaches, authors, comedians, and all kinds of engaging people on here sharing helpful and useful stuff about life. This podcast is supported by Our Solutions, a UK based mental health charity that provide a range of services. If you're looking for an audio engineer, check out audiocrisp.com. Hi guys, Frank King, the mental health comedian here. I've been asked to record about 15 minutes of my mental health journey story and how I handle my major depressive disorder and chronic suicidal ideation. You may be wondering, a comedian who speaks on suicide, how does that work? Well, I think comedian's a good choice. Tell you why. First of all, the first comedian, the world's first comedian, was a well court jester. And the court jester's job, do you know? Speaking truth to power on behalf of the powerless with humor. That's how I got away with it, or she got away with it. And I believe I speak truth to the power of mental illness on behalf of those often powerless in its grip with humor. See how that works? I believe with this humor, there's hope, with this laughter, there's life that nobody dies laughing. And depression, suicide run in my family. It's called generational depression and suicide. My grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was four years old. I screamed four days. If you want to know that story, I'll spare you the gory details. Don't want to trigger anybody, but you can go to my first TEDx talk. Go to YouTube and type in a matter, M-A-T-T-E-R, of laugh, L-A-U-G-H, or death, a matter of laugh or death, and you'll, you'll hear the story. I, uh, and I myself live with mental illness, major depressive disorder, and chronic suicidal ideation, and I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. Spoiler alert, I did not pull the trigger. Yes, when I say that at my keynotes, and I always do, the audience has something of a nervous laugh. Should we be laughing at this? Actually, I followed up with this. A friend of mine was in the audience. He never heard me say out loud that I didn't pull the trigger. He came up and said, and I quote, hey, man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? I go, hey, man, could you try to sound a little less disappointed? Yes. Again, if you want to know the story of why I did not pull the trigger, it is in my first TEDx talk, A Matter of Laugh or Death. Actually, I've got five TEDx talks, been selected seven times, couldn't make the other two because of a conflict with a full fee speaking gig. Broke my heart. I, I would love to have seven of them under my belt. Anyway, the, um, oh, you may be asking yourself, how does a comedian get picked seven times to do a TEDx talk and actually record five of them? Seth Godin, marketing guru, in a 1980, now, 99 TEDx talk called The Tribes We Lead said, if you want to do a TEDx talk, all you need for your idea worth spreading is to find your tribe and a vacuum. My tribe is people who live with mental illness and for whom the option of suicide is always on the menu. Yes, uh, and being someone with chronic suicidal ideation, the, the, the idea of suicide is always on the menu as a solution for problems large and small. When I say small, a couple of years ago, my car broke down. I had three thoughts unbidden. One, get it fixed. Two, buy a new one. Three, I could just kill myself. That is chronic suicidal ideation. And that, by the way, I talk about it every keynote that I do. 
And all the keynotes and trainings, I do a three hour suicide prevention CE, continuing ed training, all but one, someone, sometimes more than someone who has chronic uh, suicidal ideation comes up afterwards. And, and you know what? Often they had no idea that it had a name. They just thought because of the way their brain worked, they were some kind of freak and completely alone. And the relief when they find out that it has a name, they're not a freak and they're not alone is palpable. I had a young woman come up to me at a college presentation. She said, thanks for your keynote. I said, you're welcome. She goes, but I gotta tell you, it made me weep. So how did it make you weep? She said, well, you know, the story you tell about your car, get it fixed, buy a new one, or you could just kill yourself. She goes, I've been having those thoughts my entire life. I thought I was some kind of freak. I didn't know it had a name. And when I heard you say that out loud, I realized for the first time in my life that I am not alone and I wept. That, by the way, is my why. That, because people ask me, speaking on suicide prevention, do you ever get triggered? No. No, speaking on it is incredibly therapeutic for me especially in situations where I can let somebody know that they are in fact not alone. I feel sort of like that character, George Bailey, and it's a wonderful life. I've been shown what people's lives might be like if I were not there to speak and let them know they are not alone. My second thought after I had that first one was, well, now I can't kill myself because if I did, I would take all those people with me, all those people who never had a chance to hear me speak and, and find out that they were in fact not alone. Again, that's my why. It's my purpose and my passion. Occasionally, somebody asked me, how did you choose suicide prevention as a topic to speak? Well, honestly, the uh, topic chose me. Yeah. I was asked to let you know how I, how I get along, how I survive, how I deal with living with depression, major depressive disorder, and chronic suicidal ideation. And by the way, I've been I've been doing podcast after podcast explaining this to neuronormal, neurotypical people who are suffering from situational depression due to the pandemic, you know, the COVID, because they're not used to being depressed. They may not even recognize that's what they're feeling because they've never been depressed before. And chances are they're working from home so that the structure of their lives has been blown completely apart. So I tell them, well, you need to do what people with mental illness do, because, you know, if you have mental illness, chances are you wake up in an uncertain world every day, regardless of pandemics. So I say, look, you need a self-care plan. And my self-care plan, uh, five things. One, diet. I'm on the keto diet and I do something called intermittent fasting. Two, I um, see diet, exercise. I don't know if you can see behind me, but that right there is a, uh, it's an old Nordic track. You probably don't recognize the Nordic track because there's no laundry hanging on it. I thought about hanging some laundry on it so people would know what it was. So diet, exercise, good night's sleep is restorative. I think it's very important you have a good night's sleep, and we'll talk about that again shortly. Uh, meditation, I meditate twice a day. It's called The Cat Napper. It's an MP3 from the Monroe Institute. 29-minute guided meditation takes you down, brings you back up, lowers cortisol, lowers, lowers your blood pressure. It's just basically a physical and mental reset. So diet, exercise, good night's sleep, meditation, and medication. I didn't take medication until I was 60. Up to that point, I, I got by on a supplement called SAM, S-A-M-E. It's got a much longer chemical name, but SAM-E, 400 milligrams on an empty stomach, first thing every morning. You can buy it at Costco. And it is, it is as good as some of the earlier antidepressants on mild depression, and it only has two side effects. 
It's good for your liver. It's good for your joints. So it's wonderful stuff if you do not want to take pharmacolophenol, uh, psychotropic. Uh, at 60, my wife said, look, ask your doctor, get something, something. So I asked my doctor, I told him my symptoms, and he, he, he prescribed Wellbutrin. I'm not, I'm not pitching Wellbutrin. About half the people who have taken it hate it, and the other half think it's the best thing since sliced bread. The, um, okay, I'm looking down there because I'm looking at my uh, timer. I don't want to go over my time. So, and I got lucky, 150 milligrams of Wellbutrin first thing in the morning, and it, uh, see, two weeks in, my wife noticed the difference in my personality, but didn't say anything. Three weeks in, I had this thought unbidden for the first time since I was 18. I like my life. Don't get me wrong, I've got a good life. I do what I love for a living. As you can see, I've got a German Shepherd or three. I got 11 cats, rescue cats, a lovely wife who uh, adores me most of the time. So, and we have a nice little house out the river, uh, just outside of Eugene, Oregon. So I have a good life, uh, but I hadn't had that thought that I liked my life since I was 18 years old. Uh, I had that at three weeks. My second thought was, why did I wait so long to take a psychotropic? Now, listen, if your psychotropic is not working, and if mine had not worked, I would have done, I would have gone in and gotten a DNA cheek swab. Yeah, they do that. DNA cheek swab, and you, you mail it in. There are four or five companies online. GeneSite.com uh, is one. You mail it in and they match your DNA to the antidepressant, antipsychotic, anti-anxiety medication that they believe will work best for your metabolism. It's called precision medicine. It's a way to narrow down. It, it eliminates some of the uh, lab rat sort of thing. You know, go on, taper off, go on, taper off until you find, you know, one that works for you. Because, you know, sometimes the doctors only know what the drug rep told them about the psychotropic. So I also always ask my pharmacist about the psychotropic or any medication because that's what they do. I want to make sure it's not going to conflict with something else I'm taking, ask them about side effects, because that's what pharmacists do. So I started taking that. So diet, exercise, good night's sleep, meditation, medication. And I also do something called gamification. Gamification. Let's say I'm having trouble getting out of bed in the morning, you know, not physically, but mentally. What I do is I make a to-do list, half dozen things. And the game is once I've scratched off number six, I can go back to bed, pull the covers over my head and binge watch Netflix. I don't care if it's three o'clock in the afternoon, broad daylight. That's the deal. That's the game. That's how I win. And going to the gym, my gym's about 25 minutes from here. I haven't been the last six months because of COVID, but someday I'll go back. And my deal about the gym is this. If I drive to the gym and go in the building, all I have to do is do one rep of one exercise. I can turn around and go home. So that gets me to the gym, knowing that if I just, you know, I can't bring myself to spend more than a couple of minutes in the gym because I'm so depressed or whatever, then all I got to do is go in and do one rep, one exercise. I can turn around and go home. Now, I've never done that. Not at my gym. I did do it once in Chicago. Flew in on March 12th this year. Exhausted, but went down to a little gym. Nice Hilton. Nice gym. And I just thought, oh, I really want to go to bed. So I got up on the elliptical runner. I did it for a minute and a half, stopped. I went, went up, went to bed. Next morning, got up, did an hour and worked out. So that's gamification. The last thing is, I believe you need a schedule. There's a guy who spent a year in the space station and they asked him, how do you survive that kind of social isolation? I mean, you never saw anybody unless they came up with another rocket full of groceries. He said one word, schedule. He, he goes to bed at the same time, roughly, gets up roughly at the same time every day. He schedules his meals, his meditation, 
his exercise, his fun time, like binge watching, whatever. But he said a schedule was the key. And that helps you control the things you can control. We cannot control the infection rate. We cannot control the death rate of COVID. We cannot control what the government does mask-wise, although we can wear a mask when we go out and pretty much everybody who's got half a brain is. But there are many things we cannot control, so you have to control the things you can control. And people with mental illness, they do that, we do that, because we realize all those things are beyond our control. We have enough on our plate just trying to get through the day. So diet, exercise, meditation, medication, good night, sleep, gamification, and having a schedule is how I survive. And, you know, three German shepherds, got to walk them every day. So that gets me out of the house first thing in the morning, got to walk them. And then 11 cats. And I curl up with two or three, four or five every night. So they're my little fuzzy antidepressants. So that's how I survive A, mental illness, B, the pandemic. Oh, and, and of course, speaking on the subject and helping people, you know, who are living with mental illness, that is also very therapeutic and, and not in any way triggering for me. Let's see, how shall we finish up? Oh, every now and then, I like to screw around with normal people, neuronormal people. Uh, and so, especially when I'm tired. I don't know about you, but if you have mental illness, do you ever get tired of when people say, how are you? You give them the usual, I'm good, I'm living the dream, everything's fine. Some days, especially when I'm tired, I want to tell the truth. And I have people around me, my workout partner at the gym, my wife and some other people. I think you need to surround yourself with people who know what you're living with and are not going to be judgmental and are just going to listen. People ask me, what do I do? My friend's depressed. What do I say? My first piece of advice is don't say anything. Simply listen. So I had done two, three-hour suicide prevention CE presentations in Sacramento. I crawled in an Uber. Nice young man at the wheel. Our eyes lock in the rearview mirror, and he says, hey, man, how you doing? And I thought, okay, I'm going to tell him. I said, depressed and suicidal, how about you? There's a long pause, and he goes, what am I supposed to say to that? I said, do you really want to know? He goes, yeah. I said, you're supposed to ask me, do I have a plan? So he thinks about that for a minute, and he, he says, uh, do you have a plan? And, and then another long pause, and then he says, does it involve Uber? Oh, that's brilliant. I know comedians who don't write jokes that good or that well. Anyway, that's how I survive the pandemic uh, and daily life as somebody with major depressive disorder and chronic suicidal ideation. Here's the good news. You can make a difference. You can save a life because suicide is the most preventable cause of death on the planet by doing something as simple as we're doing right here, and that is starting a conversation before their time runs out. That's my time. Thank you very much.